Let's get our Bibles ready. John chapter 6, you can turn there, so that'll be the first passage we're going to look at. We're going to look at several today um, as we deal with this topic. Now, you might look at the topic of the theology of food and go, whoa, gee, Randy's gone to Sermon Light or something like that. I mean, we pounded through the fruit of the Spirit and we killed sin last week. I mean, we killed it till it was dead. At least that's what you were supposed to do. Um, and now we're going to talk about food. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll find that food is a very important aspect throughout Scripture and the way that it is used. And we're going to spend several weeks on this because it plays a very important part, especially in the ministry of Jesus. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you today. We pray that our minds would be sharp and open to you, that through the power of the Holy Spirit we would understand your word, that it would come and live within us, that we might feast upon this banquet of your word that is laid before us. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, now there's there's a story that's told of a teacher and who asked her students to bring in symbols of their faith. Okay, and and Johnny's, he's Roman Catholic, so he brings in a a crucifix. And and Susie is Jewish, and she brings in a star of David. And and Bobby brings in a casserole dish. And and the teacher goes, well, well, Bobby, what what religion are you? And he goes, I'm Presbyterian. And this is uh, what we do. Now, now the Methodists tell that joke, and the Lutherans tell that joke, and, and, you know, and Baptists tell that joke. But it's not really a joke, because we spend a lot of time in ministry dealing with food, right? I mean, it is part of it. We have potlucks, we, we go over, we have lunch after church, we'll have dinners throughout, throughout the year. Um, if something happens at your house, and, and there's, a, there's a tragedy or, or something out of the ordinary, people will bring what? They'll bring food. Okay, and they'll bring it to your house as a means of, of ministry and of caring for you. Now, the choir has been very patient because they've known what is underneath of here. <laughs> there we have a Krispy Kreme donut. Okay, now you'll know if, if you've been here any length of time, you'll know that we always have Krispy Kreme donuts here on Sunday morning. In fact, we get eight dozen. Uh, right? It's eight dozen donuts every Sunday morning. And that order has been standing for years and years. So I can only, I didn't know exactly how long, but at least since I've been here. So let's go back 14 years and do a little math. We take 14 years times 52 Sundays times eight dozen donuts. That works out to 5,824 dozen donuts. If you multiply that by 12, you get 69,888 donuts. <laughs> And we wonder why our suits don't fit, right? I, I don't <laughs> but that's what we do. Now, the question is, why do we do that? Well, we like to send your kids hyped up on sugar. We like to send them home that way, okay? Not only do we have donuts, but we go down, and, and usually there's something, some finger food or some snack afterwards. But we do that because food is a social lubricant. It is a social Lubricant. It is a means to draw people closer together and facilitate interaction. Now, if we just took 50 people and put them over in the uh, big, well, let's, let's, yeah, 50 people over in the big room of the Cooper house and shut the doors and left. Well, there might be this awkwardness and standing around and think, why are we here? But if we put 50 people over there with with some fried chicken and some green beans and some chocolate, 
what happens? Well, there's, there's this sudden, there's this ease that comes over people and they begin to interact and there you are in the food line. What do you do? You're talking to people that you hardly know because you have something to talk about. You've got so it's fried chicken. Man, it's the only time I eat fried chickens at the church dinner because it'd be bad for my cholesterol. And, and I think, well, I took my cholesterol pill this morning so I can eat two pieces of fried chicken. You know, and that's, that's how it goes. And before you know it, you've sat at the table with a stranger that you didn't know before. And now you're talking about your kids and you're talking about your golf game and you're talking about this and that. And and all of a sudden, you're friends. But if we put you in a room with nothing, you know, people tend to close off. People tend not to interact in that way. Now, there's quite a bit about life that's pretty much all about food. They even have a category and a name for the people who are like this, and it's called a foodie. Okay? A foodie, and there's even a definition for this word. It's not just a made-up word. A foodie is a person who has an ardent or refined interest in food and alcoholic beverages. A foodie seeks new food experiences as a hobby rather than simply eating out of convenience or hunger. I mean, we, we know people who, who eat because they need to live. Okay, Food is just fuel for them. Then we know people who who really like to eat because food is, tastes good and it's a good experience. And then there are people who, who, you know, don't play golf, who don't have other hobbies, but they go and they seek out new food experiences. That's a foodie, okay? That's a foodie. And we even have people who have become rich and famous because they have shared their recipes with us, showed us how to make food, you know, and we watch them on TV, and they have built these great financial empires all on cooking food, all on doing what our grandmothers used to do, and they did it because they loved us. Okay? But they do it because, you know, there's a lot of money in cookbooks. There's a lot of money in being on TV and showing us how to make those cool dishes. Now, we might like to go and make those cool dishes at home, but do we really need to pay all that money to to learn how to do it? Well, again, if you're a foodie, it's an experience. It's a whole, it's wrapped up in all of those things. Even our architecture and home design has changed because of food. The average kitchen is much bigger, much larger than it was 70 years ago. If you look at pictures from the, from the mid-20th century, you realize that, that kitchens were smaller. They, people didn't hang around in kitchens like they do today. The average kitchen size in 1960 was 70 square feet. 70 square feet. Now think about that. That's a 7 by 10 space, if my math is right. Now, if you take into account today new construction and remodeling, the average kitchen size is between 225 and 300 square feet. Almost a factor of three of expansion of the kitchen. Are we cooking more? I mean, do we have so many more pots and pans that we have to have all that room? I mean, there are a lot of cool gadgets that we can use to, to make the stuff. And we, you know, if you got the cool pans, you might want to hang them in your kitchen because so people can say, oh, he's got the copper pans. But they look so clean. Well, because I never use them. We don't cook here. Okay? But, but people like to hang out in, in the kitchen, you know, while you're cooking. Okay, some people, uh, you know, they have people over and immediately everybody goes to the kitchen so they can be around the cook while they're preparing the food because it's a time of interaction. Now, some cooks are like, get out of the kitchen. And you're like, no, I want to be here. I want to be here with you while you cook. Okay, that's, that's a, kind of the change that has gone on. Uh, 
Now, for the next few weeks, we're going to be studying the times when Jesus sat with people and ate and the significance of those meals. Some of those meals were with just a few people in a very intimate setting. Other times, they were with thousands of people, thousands. But they were all meals, and something happens around the table, around a Krispy Kreme, around a cup of coffee that doesn't happen when those things aren't present. This morning, we're going to look at the general topic, what I call the theology of food. The theology of food incorporates both food and hospitality. Food and hospitality. The importance of the table and the importance of the hospitality go hand in hand with serving and hosting, and we're going to see this in in various places throughout God's Word. Now remember, food and hospitality are not the same things as the gospel. Just because you have somebody over to your house does not mean that you are, and being nice to them, does not mean you're sharing the gospel with them. You have to purposely share the gospel with them. Food and hospitality are means to facilitate the sharing of the gospel. They're not the only means, but they're one of the means that the Lord gives us. No, no one was ever saved by a Krispy Kreme donut. I mean, the, the 69,000 are evidence of that. Now, you might say, well, I came once because somebody invited me, but I came again for the donuts. Okay? Now, that, that's okay. If that's what it takes to get, get you in the door, we're good with that. Um, but, but remember, the donut does not save. It is Christ that saves. The invitation to my house to come for dinner does not save you. It is Christ that saves you. The invitation, the donut, the coffee, the meal, it's a means to facilitate the spreading of the gospel. Okay? Now, food plays, as I said, food plays a major role in the life of Jesus in ministry. Let me just give you a couple examples here very quickly. In the wilderness, Jesus is tempted by Satan to turn the stones into bread, okay, because he hasn't eaten in 40 days. And he quotes Deuteronomy to rebuke Satan. The first miracle of Jesus was water into wine. During a conversation with the woman at the well, Jesus offers her what kind of water? Living water, so that she'll never thirst again. Later, when the disciples try to get him to eat, he says that his food is to do the will of his heavenly Father. How did Jesus communicate acceptance of sinners and outcasts? One of the ways is he purposely went and ate with them. He found them and he says, what, the guy in the tree, we, all, we learned this in Sunday school, didn't we? The key is you come down for um, going to your house today. He invited himself to his house. You try that with somebody here today. That you, I'm coming to your house for dinner, okay, be ready. In Acts, God communicates to Peter that the good news is for everybody. How? With a dream about food coming down out of heaven. In his teachings and parables, Jesus describes the kingdom as a feast and a banquet. Matthew 8, verse 11 says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. Feast shows up again in Revelation chapter 19. Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. These are the true words of God. Before he died, Jesus gave his disciples what? Gave them a meal. A spiritual meal to remember him and to be a means in which they might experience the tangibleness of God's grace as they go out in ministry. 
1 Corinthians chapter 11, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body. And then he took the cup and said, This is my blood shed for you. As often as you eat this bread, you drink this cup. You do show the Lord's death until he returns. Okay. You want to hold this? Or? No, you better not. Better not. Okay. Let's go to John chapter 6 now. And we'll see what he's dealing with here. John chapter 6, verse 26. <coughs> this is right after the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, so and that's just 5,000 men. Okay, now we understand that. So the real feeding um, might have been 10 or 15,000. It might have been as high as... 20,000, we just don't know, but he just deals with the 5,000 men he categorizes. So they're, they're, they're still hungry, in a sense. They're following him. And verse 26, Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for, for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give you, for on him the Father, even God, has set his seal. And they said therefore to him, well, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And they said to him, well, what then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? They just fed the 5,000, okay, just to remind you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. What, what in the world might he be referring to there? We'll see. Lord, give us more. Give us more of this bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. Okay? They wanted food, and Jesus, Jesus was giving them food. Okay? Turn over to uh, uh, verse 54. Verse 54 of chapter 6, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also shall live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread shall live forever." He's talking about himself. It doesn't mean we're going we're to eat Christ. It means we're going to feast upon the spiritual meal that he gives us. Okay? We come to the table. We're not, we're, we don't have the Lord's Supper today, but when we come there, we, I reiterate, this is bread, this is juice. Okay? But it is also much more than that. It is a spiritual meal which we feast upon, and when we feast upon that with our hearts right, when we have confessed our sin, then what? We shall live forever. We shall live forever. So why does food play such a central role in the Bible? And I just touched on a couple places. I mean, we could spend a lot of time dealing with all the different places it talks about food. Because, why does it play a central role? Because you can't live without food, right? 
You can't live without it. You have to eat it. You have to eat it on a regular basis. You have to, you had breakfast. I mean, you might go, you might not eat again until dinner time, till the evening meal. Or you could go, uh, I don't know, you could go quite a while without eating food. But what happens to your body when you do not consume food? It starts to break down. Okay, you get weaker, your muscles deteriorate, eventually your organs will deteriorate. But you also have to have what kind of food? You gotta have the right kind of food too. If you just ate nothing but this, what would happen to you? You die happy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have good nourishing food. Okay? Good and nourishing food. Yeah. No, let's not go. So everything that the Bible says about food finds its culmination in the things of Christ because he takes this meal and he uses it to illustrate who he is, that he's the bread of life. Okay? The bread of life. A couple other passages we're going to look at. You can turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Let's go there. So we'll get there. I'm going to just quote one little passage that we read earlier today from Psalm 34. You want 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Now we read earlier, taste and see that the Lord is good. Does that mean we can get a hold of God the Father and take a chunk out of him? No, it means come and experience the Lord. And, but it gives us this tangible thing. If we didn't have food, this illustration would be meaningless to us, right? If we, if we somehow could just take a pill and be nourished and, and didn't know the joy of chewing on something, something that was flavorful, something that was good, that we didn't experience that nourishment coming through our bodies. I mean, we go to, to the early Psalms, and the, and the Psalms says, dwell upon the word of the Lord, consume the word of the Lord, and that word is the same as a lion, uh, you know, makes as it consumes its prey. Have you ever heard a cat eating, and it purrs, okay? That's, that's the kind of the sound that we should make as we consume the word of God, as we taste and see that the Lord is good. Food is a type, it is a pointer in the Old Testament and in the New Testament to our experience with our Heavenly Father, to our experience with our Lord and Savior. We turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and this talks about food in the body. Verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. There's the key term, not mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immortality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Food, the stomach, those things are going to be destroyed. They're going to be passed away. Okay, so don't create them in your life like an idol. Don't begin to worship. I know we, we had the term foodie, okay, but we have to make the distinction between somebody who likes to do that and somebody who goes even further and makes food and that whole experience the idol that they worship. It becomes the central portion of their life because we become like what we worship. You want to become like Jesus Christ? Or do you want to become like a cheeseburger? See, I've had good cheeseburgers in my life, but they don't measure up to Jesus Christ. 
Okay? So everybody will be controlled either by and mastered either by an appetite, either by something of this world or by something of heaven. And we want to be mastered by our Lord, not by anything that has, has deals with this world and, and deals with our appetite. So let's cultivate a taste and an appetite for God, for his word, which satisfies like nothing else. Remember, you drink the living water, you'll never thirst again. You eat the bread of life, you'll never be hungry again. All right, let's, let's transition to the hospitality aspect of it. Now, hospitality is an area where some people do really good and, and other people are, are deathly afraid of hospitality. Now, let, let me illustrate this. I have a pastor friend who loves to have people over to his house and he loves to cook. But for him, cooking involves meat and fire and smoke and secret seasonings and some homemade sauce. And if there's something green, it's because his wife is in the kitchen making it. Okay. And this is his experience of hospitality. It is a great time to go to his place because everybody goes and stands not in the kitchen, but we go stand around the grill. Okay? And we debate the pluses and minuses of real charcoal versus gas, of uh, what kind of smoke, are you using cherry, using oak, using pecan, are you, you know, what's, okay, dry rub versus marinade, when do you put the rub on? I mean, these things go on for quite some time. And, and what has happened in the midst of this is that there he stands and he's got this big apron on and these big gloves because he doesn't want to burn off his clothes. But if he gets too close to the fire and loses his eyebrows, we all laugh and think it's great, great fun. But what has happened is it has cultivated an experience and a time together in fellowship. Now that's one aspect of hospitality that, that, that you know, you may, you may associate with that because maybe you're the grill master at your house or you just love to have people over whether it's outside or inside. But there are other people who cringe at the thought of, you know, 15 people coming into their house and hosting them because, you know, what, what do I fix? What, what kind of, of, of uh, the, you know, the silverware in China? Because the guys, you know, out by the grill, paper plates are good because we want the experience, okay? But, you know, if you're having people inside, maybe you want China. Do I have enough place things? Do I have enough of this? Do I have enough of that? Uh, what will I fix? Who will sit next to whom? I mean, do they get along? And they begin to worry about all these things. Is somebody allergic to sweet potatoes? Well, you know you're not coming to my house if, I'm, if somebody's worried about that. But, so you see this. What were they like? I mean, do I have the right serving pieces for everything I'm fixing? And, and, and hospitality becomes a thing that, that really stresses some people. Okay? Now, now, I've gone to the extremes in the illustration, but you may be somewhere on that spectrum. But hospitality plays a large role in Scripture, all the way back from, from Abraham, who hosts the angels, who shows hospitality, all the way into the church leaders um, and, and, and first and second, uh, in 1 Timothy and in Titus, and then on throughout the entire New Testament. Now, the acts of hospitality in Scripture include things like these. This is not an exhaustive list. They just include things like these. The reception of travelers into your home for food, for lodging, for protection. Now, remember, in the New Testament times, it will say in particular, inns were not a place that you really wanted to stay. That was a last resort. You wanted to come to a town where you knew somebody and stay at their house or to be invited in. Okay, when Jesus sent out the, the group, he said, what, don't take, don't take anything with you? 
Re rely upon the hospitality of those you will experience. Uh, hospitality um, deals with permitting the alien person to harvest the corners of your field. We call that gleaning. And we see that in particular in Boaz's field and Ruth. They were to leave certain portions of the field unharvested so aliens, those who were sojourning and traveling, could come and harvest for their travels. Uh, in, in Scripture, we see um, hospitality might include clothing the naked, feeding the hungry. Um, it includes inviting people into your celebrations who are, happens to be passing through. And the hospitality we are called to show flows out of the hospitality the Lord has shown to us. Okay? That's where it originates. The Old Testament identifies Israel as alienated people who are dependent upon God's hospitality. That God went and grabbed them and showed them the way and was hospitable to them. He graciously received the Israelites, met their needs, got them out of Egypt. You know the whole story there. Move them on to the promised land. God offers them health and life and peace and prosperity there if they will obey him. That's, it's contingent. Because if they don't obey him, then there are consequences there. The Old Testament specifically commanded hospitality. Now another motivation for hospitality is because you never know who will show up. Sometimes God shows up. Or sometimes an angel shows up. Okay, and again, we see this through Scripture. The New Testament asks the question of Jesus. Well, who is my neighbor? Or when did I see you hungry and fed you? When did I see you naked and clothed you? When did I see you in prison and came and visited you? And, and Jesus says, when you did it to the least of these, you did it unto me. When you demonstrated hospitality to people who had nothing else, you were actually doing it to Christ. Now, Paul also calls us, in, in, in chapter 12, he says, practice hospitality. Now, this is a command that he gives to all believers, not just the elders. As I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in, in Timothy and in Titus, one of the qualifications for officers within the church is that they be hospitable. But that does not remove the responsibility of all believers to practice hospitality. Paul makes that clear in Romans 12. And the force of the Greek is not just to practice hospitality to those who come and knock on your door. It is a purposeful pursuit of people to whom you can show hospitality to. You have to go and find people to show hospitality to. That's what Paul is saying. You think, oh, really? I mean, do I have to, I have to go and find people to be nice to? Yes, that's what Paul says. Go and find them. Pursue, actively pursue being hospitable. Now, why was this so important in the New Testament times? Because people were very category-oriented. Okay, remember what the gospel did. In Christ, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. We are one in Christ. Well, it was always like that until Christianity came along. I mean, people were very categorically driven. I mean, if you didn't fit in with my group, then I didn't want to have anything to do with you. And, and Jesus comes along, and he eats with sinners. He eats with tax collectors. Tax collectors. I mean, understand, a tax collector in the New Testament time 
was a, like Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector, was a Jewish guy that the Romans came along and employed. And they said, Matthew, out of this geographic area, area you have to collect $100 in taxes. Anything you get beyond that, you can keep yourself. So Matthew would set up a booth on a, on a road, like a toll, road, a toll booth. And if you walked by, he would collect a tax from you. Now, it wasn't just Matthew sitting there by himself in a toll booth. Okay? It was also the two Roman guards that stood outside the toll booth. Okay? They were the enforcers. So when you walked up, you couldn't go, well, I'm not paying you tax, Matthew. Well, there were two Roman guards there to make sure that you did. And let's say uh, Matthew has a good day, and he makes his $100 the first day. Everything else is gravy. But these were Jews who were extorting money from their own people. And they were the most hated people. Uh, and, and, and typically, Scripture lumps them in tax collectors and prostitutes. They were kind of the low of the lowest. Okay, Hated within society. But Christianity comes along with this thing that breaks down the barriers, which was unique to Christianity. They broke down those barriers. Jesus goes and he eats with the tax collectors. He eats with the sinners. He goes and hangs out at houses where nobody else wanted to go. Because he said, well, who does the doctor go and see? The doctor goes and sees the sick. Okay? Jesus says, I've come to save sinners, that they might hear the message, that their lives might be changed. Okay, let's look at one of these illustrations of hospitality in particular from 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17. And, and hospitality and this breaking down of the barriers that society and, their, struck and their, their culture had erected, the breaking down of those barriers by Christianity was crucial in the spread of Christianity in the first century, in the early church in general, because they did things and went places that nobody else wanted to go and nobody else wanted to do. It was shocking to most of society the way Christians would demonstrate the love of their Heavenly Father to people that nobody else wanted to hang out with. Okay, 1 Kings chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. This is the drought. And the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go away from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And it shall be that you shall drink of the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to provide for you food. Now, it's not about ravens being hospitable, okay? So don't, don't jump to that conclusion. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. For he went and lived by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he would drink from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. Remember, dew nor rain is not going to fall. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he rose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring, 
please get me a little water in a jar that I might drink. Stranger shows up. She's out doing her business, gathering sticks. She's going to make a fire. He just says, please bring me a drink. Okay. Now, there you are in your front yard, and you've been working all day, and you're really tired, and somebody comes walking down the street and looks at you and says, would you bring me a, a glass of water, please? Now, you might go, well, sure. Or you might go, well, sure, we'll come in, and, and I'll get you some ice, too. Or you might go and, and put up some defenses. I don't know who you are, and you want me to, to trust you? Well, there's not a question here. She does as he asks. Verse 11, And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. Okay, so the guy walking down the street says, Can you get me a glass of water? You say, Sure. And as you're going in, he says, Can you make me a sandwich while you're at it? <laughs> but she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar, and behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat and die. Isn't that exciting? This is the last meal that they're going to have because this is all that they have left. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first and bring it out to me, and afterwards you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour did not get empty, the jar of oil did not get empty, but went on and on and on. God directly commands the widow to be hospitable. The obedience of the widow is remarkable. I mean, she's got nothing. This is the last meal. But Elijah comes and says, hey, if you do this for me, this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, it does. John Calvin saw hospitality as the Christian's ethic, in particular, the Christian's ethic. He said, therefore, whatever man you meet who needs your aid, you have no reason to refuse to help him. You might say, well, he's a stranger, but the Lord has given him a mark that ought to be familiar to you by virtue of the fact that he forbids you to despise your own flesh. Isaiah 58. He, you may say he is contemptible and worthless, but the Lord shows him to be one to whom he has deigned to give the beauty of his image. Calvin says we show, he's saying we show hospitality because that guy who's walking down the street who wants a glass of water and oh, by the way, can you give me a sandwich as well? He is created in the image of God just as we were. Say that you owe nothing for any service of his, but God, as it were, has put him in his, God's own place in order that you may recognize towards him the many and great benefits with which God has bound you to himself. He's challenging us and saying, God has blessed you in this way. You're now going to be a blessing to others in the way that you demonstrate hospitality. You say that he does not deserve even the least effort for his sake, but the image of God which recommends him to you is worthy of your giving yourself and all your possessions. He said, because God has made these people in his image, just as he has made us, it is our obligation to demonstrate hospitality to them. Don't think this is a blanket statement that we should just be stupid in the way we do things. We are to be wise, but we are to be hospitable. 
So in the coming weeks, we're going to see that Jesus breaks the societal and the ethnic and the cultural restraints. And he does this dealing with food. I'm not going to bring donuts every time to the pulpit, but there'll be donuts afterwards downstairs. Now, don't you all go downstairs and eat donuts and say nothing. Okay? Remember, those things are there for a purpose so that we can get to know one another and care for one another and to encourage one another in the things of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us this, this gift of food. And, and yes, there are foods we don't like and there are foods we really love. And, and we know if we go overboard on some, it, it, there, are, there are dangers there. But most importantly, you give us this so that we might use it as a means to spread the gospel. It nourishes our bodies. It helps us to understand that Jesus is the bread of life for which we feast upon him and we will never go hungry again. We drink the living water of his word and we will never be thirsty again. That the spiritual work that goes on with inside of us through the work of Christ, through his sacrifice, through his offering of himself, through his death, his resurrection, through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, these are the things which really sustain us. And these are the things that we are called to share with those around us. Heavenly Father, what might we be obedient and learn more obedience as we dig into your word? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.